Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 625 of the Survival Podcast. It is Wednesday, March 16th, 2011, and today we're going to talk about, well, we're going to talk about keeping your head when everybody around you is losing theirs, uh, kind of... Uh, the Rudyard Kipling thing with if, but a little bit more analytical. There's a lot of, well, insanity going on out there right now. There are people that are killing themselves for a bottle of potassium iodine to protect themselves from radioactive exposure when we don't really have to worry about that here in America right now. And uh, there's people that are out there trying to get a hold of Geiger counters. And uh, why, of course, because uh, some nuclear reactors in Japan are having some problems. Real problems that are really a concern, especially if you live in Japan or right off the coast of Japan. Um, but honestly, not something we need to be that worried about. Uh, of course, Japan also had an earthquake, so the news people are telling us, well, it'll probably happen here next, even though there's no reason for them to be able to say that, and a lot of other things. But this is deeper than just what's going on in Japan. So I'll only be using that today as kind of one current reference. I'm going to talk about... Hurricane Katrina, I'm going to talk about 9-11. Uh, I'm going to talk about the ammo shortage that happened about, oh, let's say two years ago, right about the time Barack Obama got elected. Um, and I'm going to talk about a lot of these things. I'm going to talk about snowstorms from the past today. And I'm going to talk about the psychology that people go through and how it leads down to a bad, dark place and causes a lot of problems that never have to happen. But it's going to happen. It's going to happen when these things occur, and what we need to be doing as preppers is be prepared in advance so we can step back and get out of the way of these problems and let them play themselves out. So we'll get to that in a minute. First, I want to go ahead and talk about our sponsors today. They do a lot to help take care of you, sponsor the day number one today, Sawtooth Tactical. I love Sawtooth because they have all the stuff that lets you live that tactical lifestyle from Magpul magazines to Maxpedition bags and everything you can think of in between the two. Uh, really great service, really great gear, and if you are a member of the Member Support Brigade, their sister site um, also offers a discount of 10% on all the gear available at their sister site. Uh, what's the sister site? Uh, join the MSB or go into your MSB account and you can see what it is. Uh, next up today, BulkAmmo.com. Love BulkAmmo.com because, as I say all the time, it's really important to make sure that you have some precious metal as part of your portfolio. And usually I'm talking about silver and gold and maybe even some copper bullion, and a little bit of that anyway, just for some diversity. But uh, there's another type of copper that I recommend that you keep as part of your investment portfolio, and that's copper jacketed lead. And the best place I know to get that is at BulkAmmo.com. And right now they're doing a giveaway where you can win some free ammo. Uh, check out the link in today's show notes, and you can like them on Facebook and make a post about them in your blog or something like that. And uh, if you follow their instructions there, you can win some ammo. They're giving away a whole bunch of stuff so check out their promo page that you'll, again, find a link from in today's show notes. And check out BulkAmmo.com. Remember, if you're part of the Members Brigade and you order more than $200 worth of ammo, which is easy to do because it's bulk ammo, of course, you get a free ammo can if they're in stock and only when they're in stock. 
Uh, next up, I want to remind you guys to check out the gear shop. The gear shop has got some really cool stuff. Um, some new stuff that's in there. We do have some TSP Trekker Army Knives. Those were a limited edition run for 2010. The ones that are in there do not have the date on them, but they do have the, uh, the logo engraved on them. They're a great knife. They're selling for $49.95. Um, there was 150, I think, on the initial run, and there's an extra 50 or 25, I don't remember which. What happened was some of them were stolen during shipment. We got them replaced by the insurance company, and eventually we actually got our own knives back. And we decided to go ahead and purchase them and engrave them and put them in the store. So there's a, that's like, uh, you know, without the date on them. I think there's only 40 or 50 of those knives even in existence, so you might want to consider getting one. They're a great knife anyway. We've got some really new cool paracord lanyards in the store. They're only $14.95. And uh, food production systems for a backyard or small farm. Of course, that's Marjorie with Backyard Food Productions DVD. For those of you who never got that DVD while she was a sponsor, uh, we're now selling her DVD in our gear shop. Uh, and remember, every time you support the gear shop by making a purchase, you're supporting the work that SysWolf and TW have done, and they have done so much to help this show grow since our founding. So uh, your purchases from the gear shop for any items are appreciated. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, you'll be supporting the show at what works out to about $0.18 cents an episode. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. I want to be clear about something today because I'm going to use some terminology. I'm going to use the initial extreme, the second extreme, the third extreme, the fourth extreme, the fifth extreme, and so on. Uh, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't know which one's which right now. If I looked it up, I could tell you one prescribes meds and the other just talks to you on the couch. Um, but I'm not either one of those, and I'm not a student deeply in either one of those in a classical sense. The terminology I'm using today is mine. I invented it yesterday when I was thinking about this in my head, and I wrote it down for the first time today when I made out the, uh, the um, outline for my show notes. So this is straight out of my head. A lot of it is opinion. It's not a show where I'm giving you a lot of facts that I'm reading from some other place, but I do believe that it's accurate and is the way that I see things. And I think that if we can understand the psychology of what happens in these disasters without trying to make it complicated, without trying to say, well, I have a Ph.D. from the University of Bullshit, okay, which is how I feel about most of these people that, that come out of these institutions and are going to tell you how things work, when anybody with a freaking brain can just look around and look to the past and see disasters like Japan, see disasters like Hurricane Katrina and 9-11, uh, see... Um, people expecting one thing getting another, like when President Obama was elected and gun sales went through the roof and ammo sales went through the roof and there were shortages of this and that. Um, when we look at these things and we see how they've played out and how they've kind of run a cycle over time, anybody with a brain who takes the time to pause and breathe and look can come to a conclusion and understand the cycle. And that's what I've tried to do. Not because I'm a genius, not because I have a Ph.D. from the University of Bullshit, um, but because I believe it's important that someone take the time to do this, because if you're tuning into the show, you have realized that we don't live in the safe little bubble that everybody seems to think we do, where everything's okay and everything's safe. And that means you're already close to breaking free of the cycle. But the problem is you can go from the initial extreme to the second extreme and to the third extreme and so on 
and not realize why you're doing it if you miss the bridge between the first extreme and the second. That's what we're going to talk about today. That might sound a little confusing, but trust me, as I explain it, this may be one of the most self-examining uh, things you could ever do. And you probably will understand yourself and your fellow man better than you ever have before by the time we're done with today's show. So let's start out with the initial extreme. And it's something we've talked about a lot in the past, and it's called normalcy bias. Now, normalcy bias is twofold. There's a normalcy bias that exists on a daily basis, and that's what I'm talking about today. And then there's a normalcy bias that goes to the extreme in the middle of a disaster, which I will explain first, because it will help you understand how it exists every day. Normalcy bias to the extreme during a disaster is like the movie you're watching. And there's a forest fire raging, and it's coming to the farmhouse, and it's going to burn the farmhouse to the ground. And everybody's panicking and they're letting the horses out of the barn. And there's a lot of scenarios that are similar to this in disaster movies. But this one is a farm with a forest fire because I'm inventing it so I can invent anything I want. And in a rocking chair in the middle of the home is Grandma. And Grandma has her knitting and she's rocking in the chair and knitting and saying everything is fine. You know, and all of the, the hands and the kids and Grandpa and Dad and Mom are saying, Come on, we got to go, Grandma. we got to get out of here. The house is going to burn down. And she's like, No, it's not. It's all fine. Right, And that's where normalcy bias has gone into overdrive and overcompensated. And that is what we normally think of with normalcy bias. Normalcy bias is you're walking down a road, you look and you see people around you that look like they might want to do you harm. Everything should be telling you to turn around and leave, but you can't accept the fact that someone would really want to hurt you. So you keep walking and you get mugged or killed or raped. That's normalcy bias, and that's how it gets you hurt. But normalcy bias has a place. Normalcy bias has a place, and it's it's only a problem when it's taken to the extreme. You see, normalcy bias is also what allows us to get in our car and drive to work every day and not be afraid that a 10-wheeler is going to smash into our car and turn it into a really compact metal coffin. Because that danger always exists. But we can't walk around with a heightened sense of that danger at all times. Normalcy bias is what lets a cop kick a door open and go into a dark warehouse where there was a report of a possible break-in. He has to do his job. And if he thinks about the fact that the second he kicks the door, a bullet could go through his head, can't do his job. There has to be a certain level of, it's going to be okay. I can deal with this. The problem is that in modern America, in a modern society as a whole, we have so insulated ourselves from the dangers that are out there that we walk around with a heightened state of normalcy bias at all times. Everything's super. Everything will be okay. There's nothing that can happen to me. You talk to people, they say, well, my wife's not on board with all this preparedness stuff. Well, what do you mean by all this preparedness stuff? Are you a black helicopter tinfoil hat nut? No, I'd like to store like a month of food and have a garden and maybe get some solar panels and do some basic things like that. And you realize that the person actually could have gotten their spouse completely on board if they never said it was about preparedness. If they just said, you know, I want a garden because the food will be better. You know, I want to stockpile some food so we don't have to go to the store because it's an inconvenience to always have to go to the store if we're out of something. Uh, you know, and I want some solar panels because I want to be green. Well, wifey probably would have jumped all over that. But 
when you said preparedness, you broke the cocoon of the normalcy bias. And it had to do with, you know, now she has to accept the fact that, you know, maybe everything's not always safe. And that means the kids aren't always safe. And that means our house is not always safe. And, oh, I can't take that, so I'm just going to shut it off. And 90% of America walks around in this state all the damn time. And it's what I call the initial extreme or the first extreme. I haven't even decided yet. And uh, again, terminology made up in my head yesterday when I was thinking about doing this show today and not written down till now. So this is not going to be found in any psychology journal or anything like that. But to me, that is the initial extreme, and that is where most people um, are at all times. They're in an extreme sense of normalcy bias. We have so walled off all threats. How many Americans really worry about starving tomorrow? Just not having anything to eat tomorrow. Even the people that are on welfare, even the homeless bums on the streets know that I can go down to the shelter. Some people that are in the worst way possible still know there's enough food in the dumpster. We throw away food in America. Again, we throw away food in America. Now, I, I know that you might think if you if you would never eat out of a dumpster that that's like just like the most horrific thing in the world. But 500 years ago, there wasn't a dumpster to dig food out of. There was no food scraps thrown away ever. There was no there was no way there was ever enough abundance. Anything that that somebody would not eat was given to somebody immediately who would eat it. There were people waiting on the street for it, and there's places in the world still like that. Well, we don't have that in America. We're more concerned about will my Xbox 360 be the latest game system still tomorrow, which it probably already isn't. That's how out of touch I am with that type of technology. That's what we're worried about. That's not really something that's survival-based. We don't worry about, you know, whether or not, you know, even we even understand the weather. So we even make ourselves feel as though we're safe from the weather, even though if a tornado tears our house apart while we're in it, we're probably dead. But we don't like to think about that. So we use this innate safety gauge, this thing that exists so that we're not constantly under stress to the extreme. Now, along comes a disaster or a potential disaster, and it takes most people directly to the second extreme. But I don't think people understand that there's a bridge. There's a bridge between the initial extreme and the second extreme. And that bridge is a very innate, primal thing that exists in all human beings. And it's a survival instinct. It's a predator-prey instinct. And we've tried to deny it. For thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and how many thousands are up to you and your spiritual, religious, and scientific belief system, but for a long damn time, man walked around the planet... And uh, agriculture was pretty much tossing a, a pit to a place and remembering where you did it. Maybe there'd be a tree there in a few years. And we were hunter-gatherers. And we lived just one step above the animals. Maybe we built little huts and things that we took with us or knew to take shelter in caves. And we at least understood fire and tool making and things like that. But pretty much we lived as part of the planet. I'm not romanticizing this, and you can decide whether that was a good time or a bad time for your humanity yourself. I'm just saying that's the way it was. And in this time, we were very well in touch with the fact that as we followed roaming herds, so did the predators. And the predators looked at us as nothing but another form of prey. 
And that lion or that bear or any particular predator, a leopard if we're in Africa or Asia, would look at a human being and say, huh, that's a very slow monkey. That's what that is to him. That's a very slow monkey that doesn't climb trees very well. I think those things taste pretty good. That's part of my dietary needs. Now, that monkey's also formidable, and when he's in groups, he has these sharp, pointy things, and he'll try to kill me. So I have to be sneaky, and I have to sneak up and find one of the young ones or the dumb ones that are broken off for the herd, and I need to snag one and drag it away and eat it far away from the rest of this mob of monkeys that will come kill me. And for thousands and thousands of years, that's how human beings lived. We lived as both the, both the predator and the prey. And this allowed us to keep a check on the initial extreme on normalcy bias. We would take this normalcy bias, and at least now we can walk across the plains, but yet we always knew that the lion was there, or the cougar was there, or at some point in time in, in you know, 10,000 years ago in North America, the saber-toothed cat and the short-faced bear, they were there. And they might kill us. The snake we might walk on could kill us. We didn't have an emergency room and crofab antivenom if we took a bite from a pit viper. We were either losing an arm or a leg and most likely dying. A scorpion could kill us. We didn't know why. We didn't understand. There were sicknesses that could kill us that we didn't even know that it was a sickness. Somebody would just look bad and then he would stop eating and they would die. We didn't get it. We knew there were dangers around us. So there was a balance between the predator-prey instinct and the normalcy bias. And that balance was enabled, enabled human beings to not live in a constant state of stress, because that kills you, and to not live in a constant state of stupidity, because that gets you killed. And this still exists... And it's in human beings. And if you've ever hunted dangerous game, or even normal game, but especially dangerous game, you've felt it. You're walking into a thicket. You can't hear anything. You can't see anything. But you know there's a boar around somewhere that's a 400-pound animal with big tusks that would like to open up your calves for you as it streaks by, never allowing you to get a shot. You hear nothing. You smell nothing. You see nothing. But you know. You know he's there. You can't see him. You know he's there. And you know he's going to come. And you know the only thing you have is a pointed stick. And even if you do exactly what you're supposed to with it, it's not going to stop him. You're going to have to get out of the way. You know he's coming from some general vicinity, but you don't really know. But you know. And the hackles go up on the back of your neck. And that's where you're predator and prey at the same time. Even when you're just hunting a deer, something that can't really hurt you, you hear nothing, you see nothing, you smell nothing, there's no reason, but you know. And those of you who are hunters, especially bow hunters, that get into the thick woods where you can be 25, 30 yards away from an animal and never see it and never hear it, know what I'm talking about. You know it's there. This is a survival component to human beings. And it's the bridge that leads us into the second extreme of overcompensation. Because most people don't understand it and they've denied it for so long and they don't believe that it exists, they don't want it to exist. And uh, it's the reason that we end up in such dire messes. It's why I've taken so long to get through the first two components of today's show. 
Because if you don't understand the, the way that we live in this normalcy bias, you don't understand this predator-prey component in you, then you'll fall victim to what everybody's falling victim to right now. You'll be some idiot paying $100 for a bottle of potassium iodine on eBay. That's who you'll be. And if you've already done that, I'm sorry, that was a stupid, idiotic thing to do and you should have done it. Now, don't beat yourself up over it, but, you know, you could have done better things with that $100. Bucks. You'll be the people USA Today are talking about trying to buy a freaking Geiger counter. And I don't want you to be that person. And here's what happens. People are walking through life in that normalcy bias state, and anything clinks the armor, chinks the armor of the normalcy bias. And what happens is the hackles on the neck go up, right? The predator-prey instinct kicks in, but it's so foreign to them, they don't know what it is, and they don't like it. They don't like it one bit, but it's real, and you can't put it away. And at that point, people bifurcate into one of two camps if they're not aware of what's going on. One is the minority, and that's grandma in the chair rocking back and forth doing her knitting. It's all going to be okay. And then the other is where the herd goes. The herd goes straight into a cycle, and I'm not even sure about I forgot the order of the cycle, right? But you tell me if you don't see all of these things happen in every single one of these scenarios. So the second extreme is overcompensation. Oh my God, my armor's kinked. There could be radiation in the air. I need a Geiger counter and potassium iodine. The first website I've checked is out of potassium iodine. The second one is too. I better go get some. Oh no, it's going to snow. I better go get some bread. I don't know why I need bread, but I, I think I need bread. A president's coming who might want to outlaw the Second Amendment. I better go buy another gun. And ammo. Lots of ammo. Lots and lots and lots of ammo. See, people go out and immediately try to overcompensate, and it's because they've undercompensated for so long. Those of us, when, when Obama came in, that had, you know, already kind of decided what our basic battery of weapons were we wanted and things like that, weren't that concerned because we were able to sit back and go, you know, given that the Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader have already crapped, canned several different bills about restricting firearms and they don't they think it's a poison pill and they don't want to touch it, the President can't even get his own party on board with this and... You know, it was the middle end of this recession. He's not going to be able to do anything anyway. Besides, I got my guns. We didn't freak out. See? Dallas, Texas, back around the Super Bowl when our food was dying in Mexico and Florida, like I talked about yesterday, um, and everybody was worried about the football game. Well, everybody down here was also worried about food, so they wiped off the shelves over four days of ice. Bread and milk, got to get it overcompensate. Those of us who had, you know, 30, 60, 90 or more days of food in our home went big whoop, don't care. Don't have to go out in the ice. We didn't try to overcompensate because there was nothing to compensate for. Those of us who pay attention to how nuclear reactors actually work and realize all this radiation that's venting is actually gas and not uranium. It's not the core blowing up into the air, vaporizing. It's hydrogen. It's nitrogen. It's air that's taken on radioactive particles that has a half-life of about eight seconds, right? Because we live our lives in a sense of power and an awareness that there could be danger. But the first thing we do when we see the danger is evaluate it. We're not really worried about eating potassium iodine. 
I got an email from a guy last night that said, everybody's worried about this, but it only protects against that. What we should really be worried about is and some other radioactive particle. And I emailed him back and I said, what we should really be worried about in conjunction with radiation and ourselves in America from Japan is absolutely, in all capital words, nothing. Now, does that mean that I have normalcy bias? No, it means I have a ability to understand my predator-prey instinct and evaluate the situation and compensate as necessary. So, if the situation was worse and I needed something, I know exactly what I need. And here's the important part, I know exactly what I don't need. Which means I have everything but this one particular item or this one particular group of items. So, I don't have to spend any energy, any time, any money, or any wasted anything trying to acquire a bunch of stuff. I simply compensate for my one weakness in that initial situation. But most people won't do it. And the news doesn't help. And that's why I ran it about the news yesterday. I want to apologize for something I said yesterday in, in sort of a kind of a way. I talked about the wave that came to to, uh, to to the West Coast, and I said it was a non-event, and it actually did about forty million dollars worth of damage, and I think a couple of people got you know carried out to sea and died. So something happened, but if you look at the videos of what happened, it doesn't look like very much, and it certainly doesn't look like what Matt Lauer and all his ilk were claiming and nonsense about the wave speeding up and getting stronger over time, ignoring laws of physics and things like that. Um, but, you know, there was damage in California. And there was a big wave that hit California. So if I, if I sounded like, you know, what did happen was completely meaningless, I didn't mean it that. What I meant was what happened versus what the media was trumping up for you were so night and day that you got to call what happened a non-event. You know, I, I'll put some videos out today if you want to see what the waves actually looked like when they hit the coast of California. It's ridiculous the way they talked about it for three and a half hours before it happened. When people were dying in Japan and they were like, oh, we don't know if this place in San Francisco will end up over water. See, what drives in today's space the, 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 the extremes is this media nonsense. You gotta once in a while turn the freaking TV off. It's important it is to know what's going on. Once you know, stop. Stop listening. And evaluate, think to yourself, you know, how much danger does this really represent for me? And what do I really need to do to compensate specifically for the danger that specifically affects me? And many times you'll sit there and go, there is no specific danger affecting me. There is nothing I need to do to compensate for this. Maybe I need to reevaluate my total plan, but I need to do that sanely and logically. And you don't end up in the middle of the first extreme or the second extreme, which is overcompensation, because it merges immediately into the third extreme. And that's when everything starts to go really bad. That's what's going on in Japan right now, in the areas that were not affected. Okay, the areas where nothing is blown up, the supplies are coming in, the supplies are going out. Everything is basically the way it was two weeks ago, except it's not because of the third extreme, which is hyper-competitiveness. This is where I'm overcompensating by going to the grocery store to buy three gallons of milk and two loaves of bread for the two inches of snow that are coming. And when I get there, everybody else is also buying three loaves of bread and two gallons of milk. 
So I say to myself, oh crap, it could all run out because I've been living in normalcy bias. I don't understand my predator-prey instinct and I'm in the middle of overcompensation so I go to hyper-competitiveness and now I need six gallons of milk and 18 loaves of bread for my, me, myself, my dog, and my two kids. And all of it will spoil before the end of this disaster ever happens. And I have no idea what I would do to preserve it if it was going to be a long-term disaster, but I know I need milk and bread. Hyper-competitiveness is what happens when there's <clears throat> a bunch of people that have the, the scum-like mentality to do this, but I have to admit the intelligence to understand this psycho psychological conscript. They go out and buy all the potassium iodine they can get their hands on and list it on eBay. So that when you overcompensate and you look at the bottle of, of potassium iodine on eBay and it goes up to $60, you'll bid $65. And some other fool will bid $70. And then $75 and then $80, $90, $100. And you don't need it, but you buy it anyway because you're being hyper-competitive. And that just creates greater shortages and more overcompensation and greater hyper-competitiveness. This is what actually happens, folks. And people say to me, but Jack, what if you need potassium iodine? I have a couple bottles of it. We bought it a long time ago, and we keep it as part of our preps. It was cheap. It's dirt cheap. What should I do now? I don't have any, and this is all going on. Wait a couple weeks. Wait a couple weeks. Don't overcompensate. There's no immediate risk to you. This is a you know odd oddball off chance risk mitigation policy anyway. Well, what if there's an earthquake in California? And, you know, what if your aunt had balls? She'd be your uncle. Okay? I mean, that's how I start to feel. Well, what if, what if, what if? Oh, you know, what if a unicorn grew two horns? It'd be a tricorn. I it, come on. Step back, evaluate, assess and compensate only as necessary for your individual situation. The time to really build up your stores is during the good times. Now, what happens if we end up in the middle of all-out Armageddon? You get what you can get and you go. And you're in this cycle anyway, and you should have been because you should have been prepared, especially if you've been listening to the things that we talk about all the time here. But that's that's also right up there with if your aunt had balls, she'd be your uncle. It's not that likely. It's not what we generally prepare for here anyway. So we're in the hyper-competitiveness. And once we get as much as we can out of the hyper-competitiveness and we all lock ourselves in our little little homes, we have as much as we can get and we start to hoard over it, we go into the fourth extreme, paranoia. Somebody's going to come take what I have. Somebody's going to come take it away. And they're not getting it. It's mine. Mine! Right, so there's a little old lady across the street. She's hungry because she couldn't get out and go through the overcompensation and the hyper-competitiveness. She's over there hungry. Now, you're in the middle of a disaster that's going to last about three days. You know that. Even something like Katrina, we're talking several weeks. And people that could help her don't because they're paranoid. Somebody's going to come take what I have. Somebody's going to take what I have. Oh, we better, and, and then it just recycles. Person ends up kind of in a, in a, in a feedback loop here. Paranoia, overcompensation, hyper-competitiveness, paranoia. Every time there is more gas in the gas pump, I'm going to get as much as I can, and I'm going to get home, and I'm, somebody's going to siphon my gas. I'm going to put it in the garage, lock the door. Paranoia is not always bad. Somebody might siphon your gas in that situation. It might be something you have to be aware of, but when paranoia drives your decision-making process, 
to the point of doing things that are detrimental to yourself, it's lost its usefulness. It's actually become paranoia. There's caution, good, right? There's reasonable protective measures, good. There's paranoia, bad, always bad. Then there's the fifth extreme, depression. A person that lives in this cycle long enough during a disaster eventually will get to a point where they can't compete anymore, they can't get any more things to compensate, they've done all they can, they end up in their little hole somewhere, hold up waiting for the thing to end or rescue to come, and then they start to think there's nothing else I can do, and they go into a depressed cycle. They start to feel very, very depressed, because you can only be paranoid and hyper-competitive for so long before... All the adrenaline that it pushes through your body will become too heightened and your body will cleanse itself and just like a drug high. You know, any toxin that makes you high, when it goes away, you get a low and people go into a state of depression. And that's when they climb up to a roof and wait for a helicopter. That's when they just sit down in the middle of the street while a crowd's running past them and they put their face in their hands when they're in that measure at that point that's when the disaster happened two and a half years ago and they're complaining about being kicked out of their their FEMA trailer that's been provided them at taxpayer expense for over two years for free that's depression and then there's one more regret and that comes in different ways it comes in regret that I wasn't prepared in the first place but it often comes in regret that I spent all the money I had, I used all my resources, and this disaster was short-term and I should have known it. And I'm depressed and I'm regretful. And I should have never let myself go into this cycle. Because as soon as you're pulled out, and you have the hindsight, and now you have foresight hopefully as well, you realize that I acted in an insane manner. And this one happens to people that don't even go through a disaster, the regret one. As I said, I'm not really sure on the order of these things yet. But regret is also the person, Y2K. And you know what? They do run the same cycle. Let's think about Y2K here for a second. Let's, let's examine this cycle in Y2K where there actually was no disaster at all. The initial extreme was the average American was walking around in complete, tutter, utter, tutter, tutter, complete, total, utter normalcy bias. Everything's fine. Computers have saved the day. Dot-com boom is going on. The internet rules the world. Life is good. My temperature's good. Like Clinton says, it's the economy stupid. My temperature in my pool's good. My temperature in my house is good. Life is great. Uh, yeah, uh, see, we kind of screwed up the computers, and they all, um, they're all going to go to 1900 uh, on 2000 because we didn't plan for this, you know, changing of the century thing and we really don't know what to, 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 to do or millennium and we really don't know what to do now we just like what do you mean well all the, the dates are just set up as like you know uh, 98 there's there's no uh, there's no uh, 19 in front of it there's no place to go from 19 to 20 uh, okay so what oh I could screw everything up what do you mean everything well you know, Social Security checks could stop getting cut because they think you're dead. Uh, the electrical grid could go down. Uh, we don't really know what, what this will do. We just kind of just figured it out, and we got like two years to fix it. <laughs> okay, that's what happened. And, and most people went, 
and they stayed in normalcy bias. A small segment of people went, I don't know if this is really going to be a problem or not, but I think it would be a good idea to do something about it. And, you know, it just points out how dependent we have become on technology and machinery, and maybe it's time to become something. I don't know what it is. They did a little research on that new internet thing and found out it was called being a prepper. And we got some birth of some new preppers out of it. That was a good thing. And then there was the extremist that most people did. And the people selling to the prepper community, they're just as guilty as the media. Because they pumped it up. Oh, you don't know what's going to happen. It could be the end of the world as we know it. You better buy your food for me. Right? Better buy my book. You better buy this water. I mean, see, I'm all about buying this stuff and being prepared, but doing it with a methodical, time-scaled system based on your resources and how much money you actually have. But no. What happened was the bridge, the predator-prey instinct kicked in. I feel vulnerable for the first time in my life, and I don't know why. I must do something about it. Bam! Overcompensation. So people that had no idea how a generator even freaking worked bought generators. They bought generators without gas. Because I, I looked at one uh, in, uh, gee, guess guess what date that was? January 15th, 2000, and, uh, uh, that, you know, right around there. It was about two weeks into 2000, and people were selling them. And I said, uh, did you do you have any gas cans or anything like that with it? And the guy looked at me sideways. I said, you know, gas for the generator. I, if you want to keep it, fine. But if you've got some gas cans, I mean, I'd maybe take those off your hands, too. He said, I never thought about gas. Well, what do you think his generator was going to run on? Jelly beans? You know, so that's what happens. That predator-prey instinct kicked in. Y2K, people went to the second stream of overcompensation. As soon as they did, there weren't as many places to buy stuff like that as there are today, at least in 98. By 2000, that business was booming, and everybody was selling you as much as they could of everything they could because they knew, man, the way we're doing this is not sustainable. We're not teaching people about long-term preparedness. and being. Pre we're teaching them to be prepared for one single freaking disaster, and when that doesn't come, all this business is going to go away. So they pushed, and they pushed, and they pushed. So that created hyper-competitiveness. And you really saw it in November, December of 1999. If you were out there looking for any kind of disaster supplies, that's where people were just going nuts about it. Then, paranoia. The government's doing it. It's a plan. It's on purpose. All of these people around me that didn't prepare are going to come take my stuff when it happens. And then toward the end, the last couple days before it happened, I've done all I can. And while everybody else was getting ready to have a party because the new millennium was coming... The Y2K extremist was depressed. January 1st, regret. Look at my garage full of crap that I don't need and don't know how it works. And every disaster, whether perceived or real, there are people that run through these cycles. Now, if you were in, you know, the part of Japan that actually got hit by the wave and your house was destroyed, you're actually in the disaster. But if you're in Tokyo, right now, the normalcy bias of the average Tokyo citizen has been broken. The predator-prey instinct has bridged them over to overcompensation and hyper-competitiveness. They're probably on the verge of paranoia. They're not being told the truth. It's more dangerous than we believe. And they're probably a few days away from depression. And the ones that go to the extreme and spend all their money and all their time and all their energy will certainly feel regret a couple weeks from now when they say, basically, we got all this under control and we're well on our way to rebuilding. 
Oh, another apology from yesterday. I said that um, Japan would get this crisis cleaned up and done and be back on its feet before we were finished with the World Trade Center because we were still looking at a couple holes in the ground. Uh, actually, they've started to build the World Trade Center. they got like 50 floors of one of the buildings framed out. Guy sent me some pictures yesterday. Still willing to take the bet with anybody. Gentleman's bet, whatever you want it to be, maybe a case of beer or something like that, that Japan will be on its feet back to business as usual before one tenant does one dollar's worth of business inside the new World Trade Center. I still think Japan will beat us there, but it's not two holes in the ground. Thanks to that listener who sent that in. But this is it, folks. This is, and you know, I, I can't really frame it any better for you. I can't put it into any better perspective for you than these are the cycles that people go through. And this is the most dangerous part of it. And this is why it was so important for me to bring it up to you. I don't really care that somebody got paranoid in 2000, uh, Y2K, or around this, and bought a bunch of potassium iodine, or and then, you know, was regretful and depressed and paranoid. I, you know, if I had time to worry about everybody out there that was regretful, depressed, and paranoid, um, I wouldn't have time to do my show and live my life and be a human being. What I really worry about is what regret leads to. Unless you're on some kind of uh, medication that's supposed to make you feel better about it and ends up making you blow your brains out, for most people it leads right back to the initial extreme normalcy bias. And this is why from day one with the Survival Podcast I said, and I will always say, we do not prepare for events, we prepare for life. Because the guy that filled up his garage with bullshit he didn't understand in Y2K today, today, if you sit down with that guy and you say, listen, man, the United States economy is in real trouble. I, I, I want you to be prepared. I want you to think maybe about storing a little bit of food. I, I want you to think maybe about adding a little silver and gold to your investment portfolio. I want you to think about maybe having a means of defense. I want you to think about maybe putting a garden in and maybe having a way to provide your own electricity. Without even telling you, I used to be like you. Here's what he says. I'm not worried about that. You know why? He's thinking, I saw this movie before. <laughs> I know how this works out. That guy talking to me is going to have a garage full of crap and a really angry wife because this dollar doomsday scenario isn't coming. When the guy talking to him is actually somebody like us. And it's not saying go to the extreme, not saying fill your garage up with crap you don't understand. It's saying solidify your life so that whatever happens, you're ready to deal with it. But the person that's already run this six extreme cycle, that's already had the bridge from prey predator instinct to the second extreme, they don't know what to do. They just figure that that was a dumb thing and they don't want to do it again. You know, what's the old saying, you know, that George Bush couldn't get right? Fool me once, shame on me. Or fool, I got it wrong. <laughs> fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Right? Not like you can't get fooled again. Right? That's what he said. I think it's hilarious that I got it wrong. At least I knew I got it wrong though. But you know, fool me. If you fool me the first time, it's shame on you. You should have done it. But if I get screwed over by the same salesperson again, I shouldn't have went back and talked to them again. I should have learned my lesson. And that's innate to human beings as well. So when they've already run this cycle, when they've already done this stuff, when they already ended up with you know a, a garage full of MREs and, and military surplus gear and realized, I'm never going to use this crap, 
and gotten rid of it, when anybody brings it back up with them again, the person that was the most open to being prepared becomes the most closed. And the people that observed him still think he's nuts. He's now one of them. He's now a sheep again. The other sheeps think he's a black sheep, right? Yeah, that's that's old Uncle uh, Eddie. He's a crazy survivalist. And Eddie's like, I got rid of that crap. It was a mistake. Nah, Eddie, we know. You're worried about those. So all of those people are also closed. So when you talk to them, they're like, I have this Uncle Eddie, man. He was all worried about this with Y2K, like you crazy people. And he ended up with all this crap. He had to give it away to charity and stuff. He couldn't even give it away uh, after nothing happened. I, I, I don't want to play ball. Why? Because they don't understand. They don't understand why the hackles on the neck go up. And that's what I really want you to take away from today's show. Why? I want you to think, I'm going to give you some other disaster scenarios that have occurred that have been and have not been disasters. I want you to think about how you felt when you heard about them. About a year ago, a little over a year ago now, I guess, maybe a year ago, we had that swine flu thing that didn't happen. Remember that? And like the first week that it came out, we, we, we really didn't understand what it was yet. Even I didn't know. I said, I, I think this is being hyped, but, uh, you know, give me a week to evaluate this. And if it's really, really bad, I'll tell you. And if it's bullshit, I'll tell you. And about four days later, I came out and said, this is complete bullshit. Don't worry about it. Go on with life. And now I want you to be completely, completely, totally honest with yourself about what I'm about to ask you. You don't have to be honest with anybody else. Just yourself. When you first heard about the H1N1 flu, before you knew it was total bullshit, did you feel the pit of your stomach sink? Did you think to yourself, have I done enough? And many of you that will say, no, I knew. You're lying because I got thousands of emails in the first couple of days from people that were worried they hadn't done enough. And even me, I thought, I think we're good, but have I done enough? Do you know what that was? Predator prey instinct. The lion is in the reeds. Can't hear him. Can't see him. Can't smell him. I don't even see the reeds moving any differently than the wind is making all the reeds now move. But the hackles on my on my neck just went up. The lion's there. Now, what does the person that doesn't understand this instinct, that's in the middle of the jungle and the reeds are sending out the warning and they feel the hackles go up and the lion's there, what do they do if they don't understand the lion? They run. They overcompensate. And what happens when that lion's close and you run? You know what happens. You end up a statistic. Lion chow. When you run, you kick into high gear the lion's predatory instinct. What does the person aware of the lion do? They stand their ground, they back off, but they don't turn their back and they do not run. They compensate. They level the double rifle or the spear. Or they bring other people in so that there's 20 people instead of one. They don't run. But people during the swine flu, they ran. And you couldn't get a dust mask from Home Depot. Even though a dust mask from Home Depot didn't even do what was necessary. You certainly couldn't get a mask that actually did have a filtering capability to keep out viruses. And in Mexico, where people were actually dying of this, because, you know, on a daily basis, people die of things in Mexico like diarrhea, 
Now, if you knew that. So that's, that's why the flu was killing them. Uh, people went to the extremes as well. And I, I remember one of the biggest fail moments I've ever seen in my life on video. This little Mexican kid, and I felt bad for him, man. But I just, it, it, what a fail. You know, as the kids say, just, just one word to the video on YouTube, fail. So here was the fail. He's sitting there. This was on the news. And no one on the news even said anything. Maybe they felt bad for him. I think even newscasters understood how dumb this was. He's got a Pepsi. Got a Pepsi and a surgical mask on. Lifts the mask up, drinks the Pepsi, and puts the mask back down. And that kind of mentality was everywhere with H1N1. Let's go back to another one. Barack Obama's election is now imminent. We pretty much know he's going to get elected. Then he does get elected. And all of a sudden, you know, guns go up in price ridiculously, but you can get a gun. But ammo, can't find ammo. Can't find primers. I mean, even reloaders. If you didn't have primer stockpile, remember the ammo shortage? People emailing me all the time. Jack, what do I do? There's a guy selling two boxes of 45 ammo on eBay for 100 bucks. Should I buy it or not? No, don't be. Do you have any? Yeah, don't buy it. Wait, it'll be all right. You know, it, it'll be fine. Six months later, you buy all the ammo you want. Did you? Did you? Honest with yourself. If you're a firearms enthusiast. Did you overcompensate and try to buy more than you normally would have? Did you become hyper-competitive when the shortage became imminent? You know? Did, did you get paranoid that there would never be any ammo again, that it would never go back to normal? Did you become depressed because I can't afford it anymore? At some point, did you go, really shouldn't have paid $100 for a box of 45 AP, ACP and have regret? Hopefully, at least if you understood the cycle, you didn't go back to normalcy bias. And when the ammo became available, you started to buy small amounts in the you know, normal sane quantities for good prices to make sure that if it ever happened again, you wouldn't be in the cycle in the first place. 9-11. Everything's great. It was a beautiful September day, and those planes crash into those buildings and into that field. And you can believe whatever you want about the conspiracy theories. As I've said before, I don't believe the government's explanation of 9-11, and I don't believe the extreme conspiracy versions of 9-11 either. I believe the truth somewhere in the middle. But it doesn't matter what you believe. And let's please stay away from that in the comments section. I don't want to go down that, that, that rat hole. I want to talk about the impact of the disaster on the individual. So whether you're the extreme foil hatter, you're the guy in the middle that says something's not right, the person says, I believe everything the TV tells me, when it first happened, we didn't have time to worry about any of that, did we? We saw all those people die. Did you think I better get a gun if I don't have one? Did you think what else can happen? I think it was one of the few disasters where most Americans stayed out of this cycle. I think it was in their guts, but I think that more people said on that one, what can I do to help? So much so that they ended up throwing away blood because so many people donated blood. And there were, there were, there was pretty two, pretty much two types of people that came out of 9-11. All right? Dead and alive. And there weren't a lot of severely injured. There were a few. But mostly people, if they were severely injured, if you're severely injured by a 110 story building, you're dead. You know, there was a couple paramedics pulled out and all, but there was no need for that blood donation. But people did it because they didn't know what else they could do. They overcompensated. But at least they didn't get hyper-competitive and paranoid because they overcompensated from a, 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 a point of giving. I think we can learn from that. 
Hurricane Katrina. How many people say their seminal moment was Hurricane Katrina? They don't even understand the disaster. They don't even understand the lessons of the disaster. There's a there's a, an episode I did called The Missed Lessons of Hurricane Katrina. You might want to listen to it if you haven't from the archives. That talks about all the things we didn't learn from Hurricane Katrina. But how many people went out and started buying stuff? Right in the middle of that going on. All I'm saying is we need to be aware of who and what we are. If we do that, we break 90% of the cycle. And there's a place for being competitive. There's a point where you break normalcy bias and go, dude, I can't, I gotta do something about this. There's a place to compensate. We have to do it with the sane, rational, you know, head. And you say, well, when do I? When do I go out and get more aggressive in the middle of the disaster? When do I go out and go, you know, it's gotta be now or never? Well, if you understand the cycle, you'll know. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. That's why I did today's show. I don't know because I don't know what disaster, when and where, and what you're, what, what, how much you have, how prepared you are, where you are from the epicenter of the disaster. I just know if you have this information I gave you today, you'll be able to sit back and go, okay, what threat does this actually pose to me? Which most people never do. They knee-jerk react. The lion's in the reeds. I'm immediately into overcompensation. Instead of saying, lion's in the reeds, how close is he? How well armed am I? How much backup do I have? Is there anything between the lion and me? What can I put between the lion and me? Is there other prey the lion would prefer to me right now that I can direct him towards? Can I start a fire? They don't ask those questions about the lion. They just go, oh crap, there's a lion, run! And the lion goes, run! And you're dead. If you're aware, you don't run. You think. And sometimes the answer is run, right? Sometimes that's what you do. You run. But you don't run first. Because you can't outrun the lion. And most disasters you can't outrun. You've got to cope and you've got to deal. It's not as hard as the TV tells you it is. The greatest survival asset that you'll ever have is your mind. Your brain. Your ability to think. And your ability to think forward. It's the one thing that separates us from... I don't care what the evolutionary people tell you. The one thing that separates us from the animals, you know, it's not the structure of our thumb, but we can make a better tool than a monkey. And so we can think ahead. No other creature thinks ahead the way we do. Squirrel, you say, he thinks ahead. The ant thinks ahead. They store food. That's instinct. And they plan for one event. Winter. We can think ahead and we can see a warm winter, a dry winter, or a wet winter, a cold winter, a snowy winter, an icy winter. We can plan for all of those scenarios with contingencies. No other creature that we know of anywhere in the universe, there probably are somewhere, no other creature we know of can do that. Just us. So my suggestion is that we start doing it. And when we start seeing somebody selling a bottle of 1495 potassium iodine for 100 bucks on eBay, we go, idiots. We go on with our lives. We build the most sustainable lives that we can for ourselves and for our children and for our families. And that we stay out of a cycle that has nothing at the end of it except one thing, regret. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Show.